Welcome to Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing travel, with helpful travel tips, news and events, destination profiles, great stories, and expert advice from seasoned and experienced traveling anglers. This is your backstage pass to the world of fishing travel. Waypoints is fueled by adventure and brought to you by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing, a hands-on specialty travel and booking company that delivers the industry's very best insider knowledge, logistical support, and trip preparation. Freshwater or saltwater, international or domestic, Yellow Dog has you covered. And now your host, Yellow Dog founder and director, Jim Klug. I'm joined today by Charlie Kahn, longtime fishing guide, former fly shop owner, seasonal lodge manager, and the founder and current executive director of the Timon Fund, an organization dedicated to the conservation of wild timon in Mongolia. Through a variety of innovative conservation approaches and community partnerships in rural Mongolia, the Timon Fund is working hard to maintain the ecological integrity of the watersheds upon which Mongolian Timon depend. Another great example of anglers stepping up and making a difference for a species in an area that otherwise might not get a lot of attention. Thanks for sitting down with me today, Charlie, and welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Jim. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you being here. This is great. We've been dying to do a, a time and episode for a long time. We've had a lot of people waiting for this one. And who better to sit down with us and uh, talk about Mongolia and chasing these amazing fish. So thanks for that. Thank you. Absolutely. So Charlie, you've worked in the fly fishing industry for years and you've worn a lot of hats. Tell us how you first found your way to fly fishing and why you decided you decided to make a career out of fishing. Uh, well, i Grew up, I grew up in Rochester, Minnesota, southeast Minnesota, and uh, I've been fly fishing, you know, the Spring Creeks in that area since I was old enough to do so, 11 years old, and was interested in fly fishing, obviously read the magazines and read about Montana and, and always wanted to be out here, so it was, it was kind of a goal of mine to get here. So you've you been know, doing it since you were a young age? I've been fly fishing a long time, yeah. Well, and you've guided a lot of places over those years, but you started guiding in Mongolia back in 1998, and you've been a timing guide now for 22 years. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, I mean, there's not a lot of people who could say that. Yeah, I don't it, feel like I'm old enough to have done it 22 years. But <laughs> Sorry to remind apparently, you Apparently, apparently so, yeah. Well, how did you first find your way to fishing in Mongolia? How, um, did, how did you first kind of get there? I met Jeff Vermillion in the Murray Bar. I've actually gotten quite a few guy jobs out of that place. The Livingston Institution. Yeah. Yeah. And and he was that was probably a year or two before he um started operating there and just kind of knew him and like basically threw my name in the hat. And it might have been a year or two later when I heard from from him and uh they were putting a team together and that that's sort of how that got started. So in ninety eight I went for my first season over there. And you've been there ever since. Pretty much, yeah, in a variety of capacities, yeah. Well, let me ask you a question because I know there's a lot of people listening that don't know much about time and they may have seen the photos, read a couple of magazine articles, but why would anyone fly halfway across the world to fish for time? And what is it about these fish, Charlie, that makes the experience worthwhile and so unique in your opinion? Um, you know, half of it's probably the setting, Jim. You know, to, to fish those rivers in Mongolia in that environment is a big part of it. And, you know, the, the marquee value of the fish itself, it's the largest trout in the world. And so you're going to catch, you know, fish that are probably, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, averaging 30 inches. 
and the opportunity to get one over 40 inches is awesome. So you'll you'll come home with kind of a trophy picture of a of a amazing fish in an amazing environment. Well, you know, you mentioned the surroundings over there. And the times I've been, it feels in so many ways like parts of central or eastern Montana. There's this sense of the familiar about it, just these wide open places and these incredible landscapes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, my impression of it when I first landed in uh, UB, Ulaanbaatar, the capital city, which is, has changed a great deal over that time period, but or since then, rather. And, uh, you know, I kind of felt you're out in the middle of nowhere, then you take another flight out um, to Marone. And you're landing in the middle of nowhere. I felt in a lot of ways like I, I was on, you know, doing time travel instead of just, you know, going somewhere else. It was very, it was very cool. And, and no fences and herders on horses and, you know, just uh, it, it was, it was actually a lot to take in. It was, it was amazing. A little bit of an assault on the senses. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, it was, you know, just being on, on the ground floor of it was, was unbelievable. But I think particularly well we've seen montana change so much but you know it just there wasn't any riprap there's the only fences that were there were the ones we built i hate to say i mean it was just it was too much it was cool and and it's a place that really hasn't changed much which is getting it's getting harder to find places in the world that you can say that about i would say in large part that's true um you know certainly the capital city has grown a lot and developed a lot um you know their economy we've seen that go up and down you know since i've been going there um, and one thing I've noticed on the rivers that I've spent a lot of time on is, is I think the number of herders are down. I mean, the kids aren't taking over the family business, so to speak. And, you know, so the, the populations along the river are a little bit different. A lot of people are moving to the city. Like you said, I mean, UB, which is the capital of Mongolia is it's gotten massive, but that's in large part because so many people that have been a part of this kind of nomadic lifestyle for generations, hundreds and hundreds of years, thousands, thousands of years yeah. have now moved to the city. So yeah. actually the rural areas have gotten even more Spartan. Yeah. Yeah. That's not, again, not a lot of places. I, you can yeah. It's different, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. And, and a lot of it's, uh, you, you know, um, you look at Montana and our cute little towns, which are very livable, but a little village in Mongolia is not that livable. I mean, from our standards, you know, I mean, pretty rugged you don't have yeah i mean even to build a house and get all the proper infrastructure that we live comfortably in it's it's really not practical to do that even well let's talk a little bit about some of the specific characteristics of of time so they're the world's largest freshwater samanids with a historic range that included central asia mongolia china siberia the russian far east japan and even at one point on the korean peninsula correct i believe so yeah yeah and records suggest that at one time, literally like six, six and a half foot, 200 pound time and prowled a lot of these rivers. Mm-hmm. I mean, monstrous fish, mm-hmm. like Jeremy Wade river monster kind very of true. stuff. Yep. And, and these, these time in there, very slow growing fish, as I understand yes. it. Uh, they live a long time. Sometimes I, I guess up to like 40 years. Yes. Yep. Uh, yet also incredibly fragile. Very. Yeah. I mean, you know, in typical kind of in, indicator species, you know, I mean, uh, the Canary in the coal mine, in, in in large part, you know, you have these rivers that are as an apex predator. They're it's not a densely populated with taimen, even though there could be fish everywhere in in that system. Well, and, and they are the apex predator mm-hmm. in these systems. Really, they have no threats other than 
you know, ecological and environmental issues, of course, and, yeah. and man, poaching. Yeah. But other than that, they, they are just the king of their domain over yeah, there. They really are. And, they are. And, and, you know, the the hard thing to with, with our awareness of how the globe is changing, um, for me, I don't put a lot, and I know uh, Dr. Olaf Jensen from Rutgers has studied global warming and effects on time, and, there, and there's some work out there being done. Um, but quite honestly, like emotionally, I haven't really tackled that yet um, because we're, we're kind of so solely focused on what we do with, with our conservation work. Well, you were talking about the numbers of fish, and, and there can be certain rivers or certain stretches where the, the density of time in is high, but for the most part... And, and I read this in a, on, a lot on your website, Charlie, mm-hmm. from the Time and Fund. Mm-hmm. It talked about even the healthiest Mongolian rivers, they may contain no more than plus or minus 20 big adult time and per kilometer. Per kilometer, correct. So they're pretty spread out, mm-hmm. and they, they definitely have a territory that they kind of own. And, and again, that apex predator, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, they do. Uh, you know, they're interesting fish. So I've been involved with um, studies done um, you know, Zeb Hogan and Sudeep Chandra, University of Nevada, Reno, uh, in conjunction with the fisheries department and, um, and Madison. Oh, uh, this has probably been 12 years ago, but they did, uh, radio tagging and acoustic tags. So, uh, there were 40 different tags out there and they got a real good feel for how they range. And it's very interesting. I think it's not really unlike some of the brown trout studies. So you have like Walter who never leaves his pool. And then you have a fish who might go from a confluence pool upriver 20K back to the confluence pool and do that over a series of years. And then you have the one that just goes whoop and moves moves 70K (laughs) or never comes back or does, you know, so it's kind of like a third and a third and a third in terms of of the movement. So let's say, you know, for for argument's sake, you might have two dozen big time in, in a productive, healthy kilometer of water. Right. Why are they there? What are they eating? Uh, Lennox grayling, mainly. Ducks. Anything they can critters, fit in their big mouths. Yeah, Ground squirrels, whatever, yeah. anything. Yeah, I've, you know what? I've seen, I was kind of, when we were talking about getting together, I had, years ago, I was fishing a confluence pool, and there was a dead cow on the side, halfway in and out of the river. And I just kind of watched it there. And the birds would come in and this and that. Over time, I was kind of just, you know, I'd see it when I go by or smell it or whatever. And one day, we're fishing down the pool, and we land Azel Marahashi, Tokyo's master big fish guy, won the uh, the holly like five years in a row. And so I'm guiding Azo, and he lands this monster. It was a 52-inch fish with, like, guts coming out of its mouth. Did it have been chowing it on the It had to have been. <laughs> It had to have been. <laughs> and, and those big, like those 50-inch plus timing are just a, a whole... Whole different thing. Different creature. Yeah. I'll never forget my first trip over there. I was waiting down to run, and I got to a point, and I was kind of looking around. I thought, this is productive, and I wanted to come back to it. So I looked out in front of me, and I saw this submerged log. It must have been about five feet long, big dark log right in front of me. I said, okay, I just got to walk back till I see this log. And as I'm looking at it, all of a sudden it drifts out and starts swimming up river. Yep. And I thought, oh my God, that yep. is the largest river fish I've ever seen in my life. Yep. Sometimes they move. <laughs> well, it's, it's definitely special. And, yeah. and I didn't really appreciate it till I got over there because I, I always had that mindset, Charlie, where I was like, okay, I get it. The fish are big. 
whatever you go do it once, but it's not like that at all. It is spectacular. But a hundred percent, you know, it's, uh, every fish has its thing, you know, it's not gonna, it doesn't touch salt in this case, in the Mongolia case, you know, they're not going to rip you, but they're going to get in the air. They're going to blow up on a skated fly. You know, they have their own thing, you know, and, and it's actually in, on some of the rivers, which are heavier, meaner, more burly rivers, it's kind of not a bad thing that they don't just, or you'd never land one. <laughs> you would, you'd have no chance. Yeah. Well, talk to me a little bit about kind of the overall Mongolian experience. We talked a little bit about the landscape. Obviously, the fish are big. But for those that are listening that have no idea what Mongolia is all about, how would you describe kind of the, the overall experience, the setting, the landscape, what it looks like when you're fishing on the rivers over there? What, what in your mind is kind of the Mongolian experience? Ooh. Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a big question. That's a big place. Uh, Yeah, it's a big place. You know, I kind of touched on a little bit with like the sense of time travel, uh, watching, watching people herd. That's their everyday job. They're moving hundreds of sheep and goats and cattle and horses, and they're active along the river. Um, it is interesting because I've been able to fish areas that are, are grazed and not grazed. And when you get into certain areas or you fish in parks, if, if you're able to, um, it's a very different experience just because the sort of like the whole, what they've done with, uh, the, the water up, uh, like Slough Creek and Lamar that it's kind of re regrown a little bit. You know, there's definitely, uh, you can see that, that the grazing has a effect on the, on the riparian area along the water's edge, but, uh, it's, it's definitely, it's a very soft feel with, with it all being kind of grazed, you know, you have like this consistent, like four inches of grass would go all the way up to the rocks on the mountains. And, and then it's dotted with larch trees. The falls are spectacular. The color, the birch, uh, the aspen, and then the larch change. And there's also oftentimes mixed in with the larch, there's evergreens. So that it maintains the green and maybe a little snow. It's, it's epic, soft beauty. It's not your dramatic, although some areas of Mongolia are like this, but it's not your dramatic, like Teton kind of feel, or even Paradise Valley for that matter. It's, it's kind of like your sort of soft flowing, like out of cascade on the Missouri River, for example, where it just kind of reaches all the way out up into the forest and then up into the rocks, into the mountains. Just goes forever. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Well, when you talk about the fishing over there, and I know this is a tough question, uh, but if you had to, to compare it to something else, I mean, would you say you know, fishing for timing is similar to fishing for what? Would you say steelhead? What would you kind of compare it to? Well, for sure, you know, in that um, there's a lot of things that, about time. Well, first of all, I've done time and fishing more than I've done, say, Atlantic salmon fishing or steelheading. But um, it's more active. So in other words, if you're swinging flies for steelhead, it's just that's what you're doing. So with time and fishing, your presentation would be more active. You're going to move the fly more. You're going to make it look, you know, yummy. <laughs> you know, you're going to move it along, give it a wake, do certain things to it to, to entice the fish. Um, the, the, the whole... I could probably do just, I could spend the whole time talking about skating a, a fly for timing. You know, there, there's a lot to that. And, um, you know, the speed, the pace, like certain, certain flies. So for example, if you straight skate and I'll keep this somewhat short, but if you just straight skate, you can get a timing to come up to it, but it probably won't eat it. If you can get a little 
downriver belly in it and get it kind of moving and swimming and swimming downriver and kind of a little faster than it might normally. When it kind of makes that little hook, they'll they'll nail it. They'll eat it. So there's certain things that I've learned that you do to make that fish commit better to your hook. Because they're, they're not easy to land, you know. They're, they're not easy to convert. You can get them up, but to get them from there to the net to get a little DNA sample doesn't happen every strike. Maybe not every four or five even, you know, so... Well, well, talk to us a little bit about the eat, because especially when you're skating topwater over there, how would you describe the eat of a, a 40 inch plus time and coming after that fly? Well, um, it's spectacular. You know, uh, I don't know if you've seen any of the footage that R.A. and have gotten, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's head over heels. It's, you know, they do cartwheels on their nose. Um, and it can be scary. I mean, because you might be skating and skating oh, and skating and you get a little bit kind of in the groove and somewhat calm and transfixed. And all of a sudden, I've seen people get knocked over by strikes just because, you know, they, <laughs> they lull you too. no fish eats when you're ready. That's right. Right. You know, and you know, there's some guy like, you know, it, it's classic. Oh, it's getting warm. Nice fall day. Oh, I'm going to take my fleece off. And I'm like, dude, no, not now. You're right in the bucket. No, don't, yeah, don't, boom. Don't you know, boom, they're on the gas cans, laying in the boat. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just, it, it it's startling. It, true. It is. That is true. Violent. It, it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, let me ask you this. So 12 years guiding in Mongolia, okay? It's 2010. You've been 12 seasons over there. Uh, you've been there a while. You end up getting involved more in the conservation game, kind of the big picture stuff. And you're part of the group that creates the Time and Fund. Right. Uh, and you became and, and remain today the first executive director of, of the Time and of Fund. Of the Time and Fund. So the Time and Fund, in 2004, um, World Banker Jeff Liebert, who who has a great history there. So he was a, a um, Peace Corps. 93, 92, 93 in Mongolia and Maroon and ended up staying in UB and running a cashmere factory. And this led to that and this and that. And he was maybe some of one of the first guys catching time. And, but he was able to package this program together um, for a conservation project in the egg watershed, which included the creation of the time and conservation fund, Mongolia, who yellow dogs worked with and the tributary fund in Montana run by uh, Betsy Gaines Quammen. So I was involved with the science work as a guide in this and in, in certain things. And Betsy and I just got to talking about, like, I think there's a couple simple things we could do to really curb poaching, which we saw more of over time. And, you know, so I started working with the Tributary Fund here, and we created the Riverkeeper Program. And you guys time. put together an impressive amount of money in a, in those early years. Well, you know, well, the, the, the World Bank helped, but just our little program, the cool thing about conservation work in Mongolia, and we've talked a lot about this, Jim, but um, a little bit truly goes a long ways. And, you know, just the basic idea of coordinating herders with, with law enforcement um, to keep illegal. I would say that I'd like to say illegal fishing, poaching kind of poaching, makes you picture nets and things like that, which does occur, but that wasn't the primary problem. I think illegal fishing, treble hook, not releasing fish, 
things of that nature was probably the, the biggest problem we saw then. And, and you guys figured that out, that this was a, a threat to the survival of these big time. And because, again, they're, they're not you know, every kilometer by the hundreds, right. right? So there's not a lot of them over there. So poaching, you know, illegal fishing, however, you know, whatever type of extractive fishing you want to you label it was, was somewhat of an issue, still is an issue on, on some rivers. Uh, but what we've seen over the years since you've been there is that a lot of these rivers have become more accessible from UB due to road improvements. So tell us about Absolutely. some more of the, the riverkeeper efforts you guys have in place to kind of protect these fish and, and what you've put in place. Well, one thing, I just want to back up on a point. When we started guiding there, when I started guiding there in 98, if you got the upriver beat, you're like, uh, okay. And the years, and, and this is all stuff I've learned, but years and years before that, there was a Czech and Russian operator fishing the upper river. And it was hammered. And we didn't know. And even pre-river keeper, we saw that improve just because of, of the fishing presence. And so that was kind of a thing that sort of like triggered the model, so to speak. And, and, and quite simply, conversations I had with Puji, who, who runs the Time and Conservation Fund Mongolia, owner of Hub School Travel, who has an operation concession in that area. And, and he's just like, yeah, that's it, eyes on the water. And quite simply, that's what we did. And, and, and Betsy put the program together and Susan Higgins. And I went out and got on the phone and raised money and, and got, the, got the project started. And it's been going ever since. It's been going ever since. Well, that's pretty cool. And, and you know, the illegal fishing, extraction, poaching, whatever you want to call it, that's a threat. But you've also, you're dealing with kind of big picture habitat loss over there due to mining and overgrazing that you talked about a little bit, um, more development activities, uh, continued unsustainable recreational fishing practices on certain rivers. I mean, there's a lot of threats out there for sure. Yeah, there are for sure. And, you know, I think one of the things that, with the presence of operations and commercial commercial catch and release operations, fly fishing, um, there's all, there's so much, like the words out, oh, this is protected. So the areas in some ways, even for legal anglers, gets more attention. And so we've we that's been abundantly clear over the last few years. And so starting next year, we're we're gonna I, we're gonna identify what we call riverkeeper recovery zones. So we're going to have shoulder areas adjacent to strongholds to kind of widen our presence. A little more of a buffer zone. Yes. Yeah. Create buffer zones to, you know, and, and, you know, I, I think I don't want to skip around too much, but, you know, utilize some of, some of those um, people interested in, you know, expanding, expanding conservation, catch and release. And it doesn't have to be a $7,000 trip with Americans with helicopters landing. There's, a, there's other ways that we hope to identify to be able to do that. That's, well, that's, that's beneficial to the fisheries and the communities. And, and you know, this is another example of, of a, a continuing success story, because I know it's a, it's a work in progress, and there's a lot of stuff that still needs to happen over there. But, you know, another example of, of a success story where, where anglers get involved and, and, you know, protect these resources mm -hmm. that, that matter to fly fishermen, to sport fishermen, so often, though, that's kind of your first line of activism and also defense and keeping an eye on these places. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's pretty neat. But, uh, you know, I know that obviously there's there's continued threats. Uh, they're talking about potential population decreases. Again, a lot of the rivers that are really accessible by roads are closer to the, you know, the city now. Mm -hmm. uh, but the good news is that 
you guys are continuing to find these stable populations in the more remote areas. And of course, harder to get to, For harder sure. to access, but you know, these populations um, tend to be much more untouched and much healthier. And, and you and I have had conversations about, you know, kind of some of these new places you're still finding yep. and still exploring over that's there. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of the, you know, I mean, for us as fly anglers and destination guys, that's a natural. Um, but there are some, there's a river, for example, that's about six hours drive from UB that the, the river itself, um, just the way it's sort of more of a marshy, willowy kind of river, not as easy to overgraze, um, not as easy to poach again, accessible to the city. That That's the kind of area we want to, we want to create a, a recovery zone and maybe work with some of the UB fly clubs to adopt that and create some kind of like domestic, domestic angling model, you know, where they, they go out there and they fish with a local guide and, you know, it's reasonably priced, but it, it helps with protecting a different, a different river and, and create a model. Well, and that actually brings up my next question, because you talked about the UB fly clubs. I mean, is this a thing over in Mongolia? Is there a yeah. sport fishing culture and a fly fishing community that's you know established and growing over in Mongolia that's, Huge. that's indigenous? Huge. I had the coolest experience, uh, it's 19, I don't know, two summers ago, I went over to, as we were starting to create or to collect DNA samples out of one of the other watersheds in uh, northern Mongolia. I went over to join the Fly Shop Mongolia outfitting team, and it was myself and two donors, and we, you know, we're gone, and we get to the airport to fly out, and there's three Mongolian dudes that were, you know, paying sport anglers going on this trip, fly guys, you know, pay, paying the price. Actually, I walked up to this guy, and I said hello, and you know, he went to school at Fort Collins. He's Mongolian. He's an import-export guy. Lives in UB. Lives in UB. Just thinks about fly fishing all day like like we do. And, you, you know, so, yeah, that's totally growing. So we're getting interest in fly fishing. And you're getting some guys that kind of can take a trip, you know, in a domestic capacity. And so, you know, we have to figure out how to take advantage of all of that. Well, that's pretty cool that that, that grassroots element is – is alive and growing yep. over in the country. That's awesome. You yep. don't see and that, that in was, a lot of And that was um, interesting because, you know, Baira Sakhan, big fish Baira, first fishing guy, I think he started in 98. Um, he has been a huge leader. He'll teach anyone how to fly fish. And he was associated with the Hub School Travel Company. And then the Hub School Travel Company also helped kind of outfit the former prime minister, Baira. And... Buyer came out one year and we're fishing the Yellowstone and we're talking. I'm like, Hey, we need like a TU kind of thing. This, you know, what are we going to do? And you know, he's like, okay, I'm on it. And so Byra started the um, Mongolia fly fishing association and he has grown the sport. One, you know, I got to town one day in the spring and that morning he put a Facebook deal out on the Mongolia Fly Fishing Association that we're going to do a nymphing clinic on the Tula River in UB. 30 people show up. Nice. You know, that's, so so yeah. that's that's the stuff that's really, you know, that's kind of free conservation, to tell you the truth. And exciting. And totally exciting. Yeah, yeah. there's so many developing 
and I won't say countries, I'll say developing fisheries yep. and, and fishing cultures Fish out cultures. there that, that, that lack that. And the fact mm-hmm. that, that exists in Mongolia is pretty amazing and certainly bodes well for the future. Well, I want to switch gears a little bit, Charlie. Sure. And, and uh, let's say an angler is going to head to Mongolia for the very first time. They're totally new to time and fishing. They've never done it before. Let's talk a little bit about gear and equipment and flies and some recommendations for somebody that might be interested in heading over there. Sure. So first question, what rods am I bringing with me if I'm heading to Mongolia? Well, you got you to do a little research on, on what river you're on. Um, you, you know, I kind of like a, like a two-hand, you know, 81, 20, you know, 12 foot, 12 and a half foot, eight weight. It depends on certain rivers. I'm a, you know, 91, 40 guy. So that sort of depends on your destination. Are you drift fishing? Are you wade fishing? Uh, you know, there's three different or there's four different major programs over there. A lot are kind of static based, whether you're anchor dropped or wading. Some are drift based, so you're just drifting and stripping like you would on the Yellowstone. So that so that that comes into play for sure. So if you're going to be on your feet a lot in some of the bigger rivers, I like a, a you know 14 for nine. Right. Two-handed rod. Two-handed rod. There's definitely a good two-handed scene over there. There's a great two-handed scene over there. Um, you know, the trick, the you know, the balance is, you know, I definitely overweight my lines because I do like to fish a big skater, you know, so to be able to practically be able to, like, spay cast it, um, you know, takes a little dialing in. But, uh, you know, I would definitely practice. <laughs> Yeah, that's a constant theme on this show. We talk uh-huh. a lot about practice, no matter uh-huh. your, your But, fishery. you know, there's ways of doing it. And, the, and there's little cheater overhead stuff you can do. Um, so, you know, I mean, eight or nine weights. Well, that, and that know, was my next question. Speaking. So you get guys that aren't two-handed guys. Like, oh, so therefore I can't fish Mongolia. Not the case at all. Not the case You go at over all, with, no. a, you know, a nine-foot, nine-weight, yeah. semi-fast action yeah. rod, and you're going to be able to cover a lot of water just fine. Absolutely. All right. What about uh, fly lines over there? I mean, obviously, you know, when you're skating, you've got your your floating lines, um, but tips, sink tips, what do you think? You know, um, I carry, uh, you know, with my overweighted, you know, 600 on a 14, 9 or something of, of that nature, I'll carry um, a variety of lengths of like T14. I'll, I'll carry five foot sections or 10 foot sections and kind of depending on what I want to do, if I want to dredge, I, I'll have that option. And you're changing it up a lot, depending on, you know, what fishery you're on, where in the fishery. Well, I skate. <laughs> you just, you just skate. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yeah. No, but we, we, we do, you know, it depends on what you're doing. And, and again, like, but the, the switch, they can't see me doing quote switch. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you what, there's something pretty deadly with, with an eight weight switch rod and a 300 regular, good old fashioned 300 line, load it, pick it up, throw it, cover a lot of water, a lot of water. Well, there we go. Well, so a little bit about rods and and lines there. Um, obviously you don't know what the weather is going to do. You might be fishing in a t-shirt. You might be fishing in snow, depending Mm -hmm. on where you are. So great waders, good rain gear, lots of layers. Mm-hmm. I, I tell people, you know, think about going to Montana in the fall. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, there are summer programs there. You know, MRO runs in July and August, and I'm sure those guys never touch waders. Um, you know, their upper, their expedition. Yeah, the upper canyon the stuff. Upper canyon and the expedition. Stuff, yeah. They do that. You know, I'm sure they're wet wading the whole time. Um, but yeah, so through your kind of your more traditional, typical egg river, shishkid, um, those rivers, yeah, you're, you're dressing for fall. 
How about wading boots? What do you like for footwear over there in most of those rivers? Um, I'm I'm kind of like I'm a felt guy. I'm a felt till they take them off my cold dead feet. I hate to say it. <laughs> it makes a difference. You know, it just does. I don't care what anyone says. And, you know, um, it just. Disinfect them and bring them with you. Right? Disinfect them, bring them with you. It makes a difference. It makes a difference. Yeah. You know, you know, bring some studs if you need to. But, man, I've gone skidding across boats. And studs, like, you forget you're wearing them. I guess I wear what I'm used to. I don't know. I'm, I'm just, that's that's my call on that. So there's currently not a band there. Maybe there should be as, like, the conservation guy sitting here saying, we'll bring felt. I don't know what that message says, but, you know. <laughs> well, I just, I, you know, right but I, I do, hey, I, I deal with that all the time, too, you know. I mean, you know where I guide around here. Yeah. I'm, I'm, as a guide, I'm waiting for three people. And if I have a guy go slipping around, I have to have the safest thing on my feet so I can go grab him. That's right. And and for me, that's felt. And when I'm on my rubber boat doing what I do around here, I'm going to wear my felt in my boat. And if I got to bail out to grab some guy by the back of the shirt, I'm going to do it in felt. There you go. <laughs> well, a little bit about footwear there, mm -hmm. so for sure. Now, I know, and I'm going to open a Pandora's box here. Um, we could do an entire two-hour program just on flies for time in. But, you know, in, in just a minute or so, give me kind of your, your go-to thoughts on flies. Must-have patterns, sizes, kind of some of the basics. And I know that's, that's hard to no, do. No, I get but. it. I'll use any skater uh, as long as it's black. Okay. And then, uh, you know, for... For streamer flies, I think you're just kind of your your typical array of contrasting uh, dark and light, you know, chartreuse and white, uh, blue and white, you know, blue and gray. Um, I'm not – a flash tail whistlers are great, like a yellow and red flash tail whistler. Skaters, big cyclops patterns. As long as they're black. As long as they're black. Yeah. All right. How about a hook size or a range a of hook sizes? A two-aught, you know, like that S10, something I use a lot of. That two ot will cover most bases Pretty on most much. rivers. Yep. Yeah, these fish aren't afraid to eat when they decide they want no, something. No, one ot, two ot, those are all pretty good. Um, you know, it's, uh, you got to be, you know, it, in the uh, time and guiding is math. It's just all simple math. You know, how you cover the water. If you hear your fly tick behind you, please check it because you don't know when you're going to get your next hit. And it might be that 50-incher. Yes. The fish of the yes. week. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's just like – and the other cool thing, we were, we were talking about how to contrast timing with other, you know, types of fish. The thing that I really like about timing fishing is you really can move. You know, like if you take a pool that you might spend an hour in steelhead and you can fish it in 20 minutes, timing fishing. Because what you're doing is looking for the aggressive fish. There could be eight fish in that pool, but one's in the mood. And, you and know, if unless they're in the uh, mood, they'll move. They will move. And, you know, sight fishing is a different story. You don't always get to do it. So if you can work a fish and it'll let you work it, heck yeah, work it. But if you're just covering water, just go. You know, never be surprised by the puck, though. That's the thing. You know, you get looking around and all of a sudden the puck's on your stick and you're in front of the net and you can't, you know, you got you to be ready for a strike. It's, it's hard and, and you have to keep your tip down. And so my whole game as a guide is keeping people's chest towards their fly, you know, keeping their hands in front of them so they can't do one of this. You don't work the fly with your rod tip. You work it with your hands so your instinct isn't to lift. Just I just coach little discipline things with the guys to hope 
that they convert better to their opportunities. Because the opportunities might not come all that often, but when they do, you they're going to never know. You're, you, you just don't see it coming. Don't expect it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's so true. How about reading water uh, when you're fishing for time in? I mean, we already talked about the fact that there may be only one or two dozen fish per kilometer on mm-hmm. some of these rivers. What are you looking for typically when you're hunting these fish? Is there certain things you're keying on when you're trying to read a, a run or a pool? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, so I think I would say that you would find your time in water, you know, it's a little bit of a split of variables, you know, because they are big. So hydraulics are certainly important. Temp plays a role, but not so much because in the fall you're working kind of a more kind of cooler temp. I would suggest that you fish trout water about as much as anything. Uh, I feel like people get too stuck in the big kegs, you know, like the big, dark, big pools where you could spend a lot of time fishing them, but you're fishing the living room, not the kitchen, you know? So the kitchen where they're going to be looking for a snack, that's kind of the trout water, you know? So the nice, the nice, uh, you know, walking pace water, the insides, you know, that's the kind of water that, that I like to focus on. I love it. The kitchen instead of the living room. Yeah. That's the first time I've heard you say that. Yeah. That's a, that's a great analogy yeah. right there. Yeah. The fish form in the kitchen. So how about favorite water conditions um, for, for fishing for time? And I mean, do you like, you know, the high and off color early season? Do you like low clear water late season? You know, when it rains or snows, I mean, what are your, what's kind of your thought on, on overall water conditions? Clear. Clear is better. Yeah. You're always hoping for clear. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, that's the same in Montana. Yeah, you know, yeah. the thing about it is um, we've had opportunities to fish in the, so, okay. The the time and season opens June 15th nationwide in Mongolia. And oftentimes, with few exceptions, there's no fishable water because the influence of the monsoon season and the high water and muddy water. But we've had the opportunity to fish in the spring before the rains come. Now, runoff isn't a huge issue there. They don't get a lot of snow, at least not in the regions where where we fish. So the runoff kind of comes and goes real quick. So we've been in there in the spring where you're wet wading and it's warm. And I've noticed definitely that the fish move up more oxygen like we see on the Yellowstone, like trout fishing. When it's warmer, they're eating, they're eating hoppers in a foot and a half of water. You know, so I've seen that kind of fishing with timing, which is super exciting. Uh, but, you know, you can't, because of the nature of the season, you know, with those were science permits that we had and, uh, in the general season, you know, it's going to be colder. You're going to be fishing colder water just because you need it clear. So how about weather patterns? I mean, do you notice if you're over there and it's been nice for a week and all of a sudden, you know, you get a a freeze at night or it gets super cold for that first time. Does that turn things on, turn things off? What do you, what do you see? Um, yeah. So it's funny because, um, the, well, for one thing, like trout, I like low light, for one, maybe a little drizzle. Um, so that that's a big part of it. They'll eat better in low light. You get what I call severe clear. That's not good, which is beautiful, but and it's good for photos. But uh, the low light is better. You get this whole thing where you talk to time and fishermen. Um, they love that last bit of fishing before the freeze 
like before it just goes to unfishable. And the fish get very active right before it shuts off. But to sell a fishing trip to be in those conditions really isn't reasonable. So leading up to that, you start getting freezes. And those initial freezes, I think, put them off a little bit for a bit. Once they kind of acclimate to it, it's, it's pretty good. You know, so any of those weeks in July are pretty good. You know, you're going to have ups and downs, but if you get the right light and a little bit of a little sleet or a little snow, that's, that, those are good conditions. It's good to know. So I'm going to throw another one at you here, Charlie. This is kind of a big general question, but overall, a couple key pieces of advice on how anglers can prepare for a time and trip, both mentally and physically. What what are a couple key recommendations you have for preparation? Well, leave your trout habits at home. You know, you want to, you want to let them eat. You don't want to lift the rod and and th- you know that that's a tough question because you can't practice that. You know, usually when people leave Mongolia, they they come back and go trout fishing. They're bad trout fishermen once they get the time and figured out. Um, you know, but you know, it's just the, probably the same things you hear when, when you do talks like this, Jim, uh, you know, practice your casts and get used to your rods and reels, you know, talk to, talk to people, um, talk to people who have been there. Um, you know, I, I guess the casting would be a big part of it. You're going to get it dialed in. I mean, you're going to go out and cast for a few days and by day three, you know, you'll be feeling good about your setup, but you probably missed, you know, half of your strikes for the week. We, we talk about that all the time, whether it's a program it's, on GTs or bonefish or trout, it doesn't matter. But it, it never ceases to amaze me, Charlie, that people will book a trip a year out. They'll spend a lot of money on the trip package and the flights and getting there. They'll take their valuable time off. And the first time they rig up their setup is is their first day on the water with the guy sure. without any kind of preparation or practice. And right. it, it's just amazing. Cause like you said, by day three or four, sure you're dialed in, but your trip is half over. Sure. And, and just a little bit of that, that practice and the casting and your presentations yeah. before you go. Will but Jim, deliver. we, we need those guys working so they can take trips with us. So if, if it takes till day three, until they're throwing it, well, I guess we'll just have to deal with it. And just book a two week trip. Book, yeah. Book a two week <laughs> trip. There you go. Just book a two week trip. There we go. Well, let me ask you this. So we've mentioned, uh, UB Ulaanbaatar, are the capital of, mm-hmm. of Mongolia a couple of times when you're passing through UB and I get this question a lot from people headed over. What are a couple of your favorite things to do and see in the city? I know it's gotten hectic and crowded over there and sure. chaotic, but do you have a couple of favorite things? You well, like? you know, I think I think you do you do the classic. You go to Sukhbatar Square. Um, you should go to Gondon Monastery in UB. Uh, those are those are two you ought to do. One of the really cool uh, the natural not the natural the history museum. Yeah. That's not one the, of my favorites. Not the Natural History Museum, which is cool, but the History Museum of Mongolia, which, by the way, they did a little uh, deal at the uh, Museum of the Rockies. I don't know if you went to that. It was great. Yeah, last but year that, they did that. But that History Museum uh, is a great walkthrough with, with a guide um, just to learn more about Mongolian culture. They have a room that's this long, narrow room with these glass cases it's called the Dell. So the Dell is the traditional wear uh, clothing of the Mongolians. And, you know, pre-Genghis Khan, and of course it was past that as well because it's regional, but, you know, before they're united, they're very tribal, and each tribe has their own set of, of clothing. And they have this room with all the different uh, tribal wear, and that's a spectacular place to visit. So I, I wouldn't miss that. 
I love that museum. Yeah. They, they also have, I think, the world's first RV. It's the, the right. yurt on That's wheels right. yeah. that maybe Genghis Khan had it, but it would be pulled by like, you know, 100 animals and all kinds of things. It's a massive uh, gur, which is like the big yurt on wheels, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is something to see. Yeah. Pretty cool. And, 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 and for sure, in addition to practicing your casting, um, I'm going to get it wrong, but the Genghis Khan making making of the modern civilization or Genghis Khan and the modern civilization. So it's a, it's a book that, you know, uh, sort of talks about the time that the whole process of Genghis Khan, you know, conquering the world in large part, uh, that's a great read. And that's a, that's a great book to read leading up to a trip to Mongolia. You're going right to the heart of it. It's awesome. Absolutely. Well, would you say that overall, in your opinion, I mean, all these years you spent over there, the Mongolians, wonderful people, wonderful, certainly, some of the toughest people you've probably oh, God, met anywhere. Yeah, man. Totally. I mean, that's a crazy environment. That they I, I haven't there. been there in the winter. I grew up in Minnesota, so I, I don't need to go to Mongolia because I think it's worse. <laughs> and, you know, oh, man, tough. You know, those guys are breaking ice on the river so their animals can drink. And they cut hay in the fall and they put it up on their on their, um, on their stables and they have hay and they burn dung to cook their food and to stay warm. And, I mean, unbelievable. Hardy people. Hardy. Yeah. How about uh, the best glass of uh, fermented mare's milk you've had over there? You a fan? Uh, I think my first and my last must have been my best one. <laughs> That's some potent stuff. Yeah, man. Sure. I mean, you know, uh, people ask. I'm like, well, take a bridle and throw it in a blender and try to drink it. Or I don't know how to compare it. It's it's very horsey, <laughs> you know. Something you're not going to find at uh, East Main Liquors here oh, in Bozeman. Man. Fermented mare's milk. Well, Whoa. at least not inside it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, this has been awesome, Charlie. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, my pleasure. You know, along with uh, the actual time and trips that are offered on the Yellow Dog website, uh, tell us where people can go to learn more about your work with the Tayman Fund and what you guys have going on. Yeah, timeandfund.org. Yeah. You know, that kind of breaks down our programming. Um, you know, we have education, educational programming and scientific, and then our, our kind of flagship uh, Riverkeeper program. Yeah. And thank you for helping sponsor those through Yellow Dog the last few years. So that's a great deal. Well, it's an amazing place, yeah. and uh, I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to go over a few times now, and it's just it's turned into one of my favorite destinations. It's a, a must-do trip for people that love adventure and, and new cultures and just completely off-the-grid type of fishing scenarios. Well put. It's amazing. Well, that's it for this episode of Waypoints, the podcast that is 100% dedicated to travel, adventure, and exploration. Be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com to plan and research your next fishing trip. Sign up for newsletters and new podcasts and stay up to date on the latest travel news and developments. Join us for our next episode of Waypoints. And remember, no matter where you go or what you're doing, no one ever regretted a life of adventure. This has been another episode of Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing travel and adventure angling. Thank you for joining us and be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com for more trip updates, travel news, expert advice, and adventure profiles.